0: Sexuality, strong and warm and wild and free. Sexuality, your laws do not apply to me.
1: Thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture beyond the brochure. Hi. Well, I'm recording this on the 23rd of December, Christmas Eve Eve, or as my friend Victoria calls it, Christmas Adam, because Adam came before Eve. Apparently she has a tradition on this day of her family eating spare ribs. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Of course, by the time you all listen to this, Christmas may well be long past. Happy Easter! Happy Easter! Or indeed you may be listening to this over Christmas Day a lull while you wait for the sprouts to become edible. Good luck with that. Or because you're bored of yet another repeat of Only Fools and Horses or some other such overrated comedy series broadcast endlessly because it's cheap and easy. I'll be cat-sitting. This is quite normal. My friend Amy generally has Christmas with her dad who lives about six miles away and she tends to stay overnight on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. She has five cats, so my role is to stay at hers and to make sure those cats, A, don't die, and B, don't wreck the joint. I quite enjoy it. It's not really much different than staying at home, which is what I would be otherwise doing. Christmas has never been terribly special to me, not since I was a teenager anyway. I've never been fond of the whole gift-giving thing, and it almost annoys me when people buy me presents when I specifically tell them not to. This isn't a Christmas thing. I have the same feelings about my birthday which is why I tend to not tell people when it is, including my old work colleagues, who for some reason got very annoyed at this, so annoyed indeed that they looked up my details in the back-end database of information we'd brought in from our data provider. At this point I ought to say that I worked in data analysis, and it was their job to use such information to work out things like which customers would be best to market to, and my job was to see whether different types of customer reacted in different ways to stuff we did to them. We all had to sign the Data Protection Act to ensure we wouldn't use any of this information in an inappropriate way. I'm sure that was a breach, but eh, unenforceable. In addition, I have a small family, so visiting them at Christmas wouldn't feel any different to visiting them on any random weekend. I usually spend my Christmases alone, partly griping the fact that everything is closed and there are no buses, but mainly doing exactly the same things I do every other day of the week, which is playing on the internet and actively avoiding everything I should be doing. This means my Christmas dinner tends to be low-key. In previous years I've had spag bol, curry, and on one famous occasion, cheese sandwiches. Brown sauce. No onion, sorry. Because I live alone, there's no real need to buy huge amounts of food, and since a Christmas dinner is simply a glorified Sunday roast, and I tend not to cook myself Sunday roasts for the same reason, I've never bothered. I believe this year Amy's prepared a fish curry in the freezer for me to defrost and nibble on, so that'll be fine. Maybe I'll need to pick up some naan bread tomorrow before the shops close do My attitudes to Christmas have made my friends refer to me as the Grinch. This isn't entirely fair. My feelings are that Christmas isn't important to me. I'm perfectly happy for Christmas to exist and for people to celebrate it in their own way. I'm just not necessarily going to join in. Except maybe with the join-in hashtag on Twitter that the comedian Sarah Millican set up a few years ago to connect together people who were alone at Christmas to chat and keep themselves amused with. I guess in a sense my feelings are that I don't celebrate Eid, Passover, Diwali, etc. So why would I actively celebrate Christmas? Anyway, if I still have listeners at this point, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. What do you plan to do in the New Year? I'm feeling I need to get away for a bit. This month has been a bit hard for me on a mental health basis, to the extent that I felt I had to go offline completely for a couple of days to clear my head. I have a number of issues, most of which are entirely inside my mind. For instance, a lot of it is down to money. When I got made redundant, I got a large payoff that should have lasted me several years. It's been nine months. I've spent half of it. This is oddly mainly because when I'm in the UK, I kind of live day to day and spend money accordingly. It's just so easy to pop into the supermarkets and get snack food for the day in question. So easy to spend every night in the pub, double down because I don't feel I have a home here, so I don't generally cook and store for myself anymore. Also, the UK is quite an expensive place to do this sort of thing in. Remember too that with such an amount of money in one bash, it's so easy not to budget because it, it doesn't matter what you spend. There will always be more. You hear tales of lottery winners quickly going bankrupt because they overspend. I used to wonder how they did that, but it's actually really easy because you're not paying attention. You're not budgeting. You kind of don't really care. And this was coupled with a large crash in my feelings about my blog and indeed my podcast podcast. I made the mistake of looking at other people, even just my friends. They make money from their blogs, their feeds, because they're good at what they do. I had a bit of a hmm, crash mid-month when I felt that I'd never be able to do that because what I write isn't good enough and too niche to be popular anyway. And since I took redundancy to try and make money from travel writing, total money made so far, zero pounds, zero pence, I ended up feeling that the whole experiment had been a failure. But the thought of going back to The Office was even worse. A spiral of despair, as it were. I figured the best solution was to get away for a bit. When I travel, except in countries with decent beer, I hasten to add, I tend to spend far less than I do at home. Plus, being able to travel on a whim to far-off places was one of the advantages of taking redundancy in the first place. Part of me thinks I made a mistake and I should have sold my house rather than getting a lodger, as then I'd have been far freer to go explore and be myself. And one of my issues in my own mind is that I don't feel I can or have been myself. But the reason I didn't was for this long-term planning. It was making sure that I had somewhere to go back to and that I didn't compromise my future. I'm not sure where to go, though. There's a few places that spring to mind. Um, Sudan, which currently may not be the best place to go because they may be about to have a revolution. But, hey, I went to Burkina Faso three weeks after they had one, so, you know. Um, Back to Burkina Faso is another option. Uh, Lebanon. Um, but for some reason I don't have the, uh, what you might say, vavavoom for anywhere specific. It doesn't help that it's winter and some of the places I could go nearer to the equator are also high altitude, uh, Azerbaijan, Pakistan, for instance. I also have, in the next couple of years, friends who want to visit some of these places anyway, so are interested in going with me. I'm sure by the time my next pod comes out, decade, I'll have made a decision and, uh, well, to be honest, probably be there because everything I do is last minute, but we'll see. In any case, I need to be a third of the way around the world by the end of the month, by the end of January. While I personally don't plan to the nth degree, and as I say, I go to places last minute, other people I know do not. I'm meeting my friend Laura, who you will have heard extracts from in previous podcasts, and turns out she's very much a planner, to the extent that she's already pretty much sorted our entire trip, including accommodation. She's currently teaching English to kids in China, Despite being American, I mean, they'll let anyone with any knowledge of English do that sort of thing these days. But I'm her travel companion of choice for a quick exploration of Indonesia over Chinese New Year. In addition, she wants to go to Philippines. Now, long-term listeners of my podcast will remember that in episode 3, I talked about places that I'll probably never visit because I didn't see much there to attract me. And Philippines was one of those having now read the lonely planet guide to the country i'm still minded to think that but laura is insistent on visiting and i'm thinking well i don't know for sure unless i go in addition she feels that this is the perfect place to resolve one of the vaguely amusing triplet of incompetence that i like to bring out every now and then in case you don't know i've reached middle aged without being able to drive ride a bike or swim Laura's view is that Philippines is full of suitably quiet and secluded beaches where she can teach me to swim without too many people laughing at me. Apparently she spent a couple of years as a swimming instructor to children. I'm not sure she quite fully grasps yet that this will be worse for her, but we'll see. I'll talk about this swimming lock if and when it happens. In the meantime, I have to buy some swimming togs, clothing I haven't owned since about 1988. Well, I won't know for sure unless, is a phrase I've used before in other circumstances. Note the subject of this podcast, sexuality, as introduced by the aforementioned Laura, reciting lyrics from Billy Bragg's early 90s hit, Sexuality. Note, too, that Laura's speaking voice is better than Billy Bragg's singing voice. Great lyricist, social agitator, but oh my God, no one should ever have let him sing. He's about as good as I am. I took singing lessons back in 2012, but no one noticed and I'm still reluctant to do karaoke, unless everybody else is drunk. But I digress. Now... This may well be a case, a very strong case, of too much information for those playing song title bingo, Duran Duran, mid-90s, but that's pretty much the primary reason I ended my virginity. I won't say lost, I know exactly when and where it happened and why, it was in the bedroom of the house I was renting as a post-student to a lady who had been dropping strong hints for the previous eight months. I was twenty and a half years old, and it was something i'd always been avoiding because i didn 't think it was going to be something i 'd enjoy or be any good at, but figured I ought to try just in case I was wrong. Listeners, I was not wrong. I guess I should have realized then, but back in the nineties the word didn 't really exist, or at least it wasn 't common knowledge, and in any case, because it wasn 't something that really bothered me, I never really thought about it. it just wasn 't important, but it was always something lurking in the background of my relationships and meant that none of them ever really developed much beyond the honeymoon stage. Note that I've been engaged three times, though the latter two were more hope beyond expectation than anything truly life-affirming. Note also that both of them I'm still friends with. Indeed, I'm friends with most of my exes, and maybe for this reason, my dismissal of sex as being relatively unimportant, means that there ends up being very little difference between friends and relationships, so most of the latter come from and quickly return to the former. As I was typing up this podcast indeed, in preparation for speaking it, I was wearing a sweatshirt to that end. It has a banner or flag, which I'll come on to later, with the caption of, I'd rather eat cake. It's a very stereotypical quote, but assuming that it's chocolate happens to be true in my case, if it were, say, a Bakewell pudding on offer, then I'd probably always choose a third option. Not sure what the third option would be. Travel, probably. Travel is always a good option. Anyway, the word you're looking for is asexual. That is, someone who generally doesn't find sexual attraction in people, regardless of who they are. In essence, it's kind of the exact opposite of bisexual or pansexual, who have the potential to find anyone sexually attractive. That doesn't mean I don't have sex, although I haven't since December 2015, or indeed any kind of sexual activity, which was a little more recent. Hmm, transatlantic booty call... Just that I tend not to get easily aroused, nor do I ever feel the desire to have sex. I'm not aromantic. I like the feeling of hugging, of holding hands, but I'm comfortable doing this with friends where we both know it won't go ever any further. My friend Amy, the lady I'm cat-sitting for, and an ex-girlfriend, assumes that I'm gay. While I may have dabbled in that arena, yum-yum sausage... I find naked men even less appealing than naked women. It's interesting watching programs like Naked Attraction. She objects to the concept of finding people to date based purely on what they look like, even if you know you'll be naked with each other later. Well, I just don't find nakedness attractive in and of itself. Note that there's a huge difference between asexuality and celibacy, the latter being the choice of refraining from sex regardless of sexual attraction, while the former is someone having little or no sexual attraction in the first place. It's often confused in the mainstream, but, invoking another stereotype, if members of religious orders were asexual as well as celebrate, well, the Catholic Church's PR department would be a lot less busy. Now, what has all this got to do with travel? Sexuality is important. Uh, I mean, the thing is, when you're travelling, you still
2: have those needs, but you're not, you're not in your hometown, you're not always at the same place. So you meet people differently, you chase
1: people differently, and you still have to find ways to have sex, especially if you sleep in a dorm. See, I agree with Rubens from Being Around the Globe. Being asexual does change the way I travel a bit compared to other people in my peer group. Well, maybe not now, but certainly in the past. The average mid-twenty-something male from post-industrial Heartland UK may be tempted with the delights of Ibiza and Ionapa, I'm not saying Geordie Shore is representative of a certain demographic, but, well, hmm, where did I go in my mid-twenties? Morocco, China and small-town USA. Slash me, shrugs. My friend Yea in Belgrade has this to say about her feelings of how important sexuality shouldn't be when you travel.
3: Regarding sexuality on travel, uh, I don't think it should be important what is your sexuality when you are traveling, unless, of course, you are traveling to, say, Middle East and you know, you would be, I don't know, (laughs) whipped and stoned and uh, something if uh, you kiss your partner in public or let alone if you are gay. I think a guy was banned from Saudi Arabia because he was too handsome and he was provoking people on sinful thoughts (laughs) that was the explanation for banning him Um, so yes unless unless you go to places where it's risky to express your sexuality no matter what it might be I really think it should be irrelevant what is your orientation
1: what bizarre side effect is that it makes it easier for me to chat to people in backpacker hostels, especially women, even if they don't realise it. And to be honest, if I were an early twenty-something woman, I'd be somewhat phased if a weird middle-aged bloke started talking to me. Obviously, only if they speak to me first, regardless of my sexuality. My introversion is by far and away the most important aspect of the way I travel. Now, see. When I browse my travel Twitter feed, it's notable not only just how many people identify as gay and lesbian, for instance, but also how much they take that aspect of themselves and make it a core part of their travel writing and blogging. It's not just, I've been to this place, oh by the way I'm gay, it is very much Barcelona as a gay traveller, or things to do in Berlin for lesbians. They also commonly post about safety and politics, how to travel safely as a lesbian, places for LGBT travellers to avoid, things to be aware of if you're gay... There are even specific blog awards in the LGBT community, including things like Best Travel Blog. Yet. While the community's acronym is never-ending, LGBTQIA+, most of the blogs, most of the community, is at the left-hand side. Asexuality doesn't really sit well with the other identities. No one really promotes asexuality as a concept. No one really has asexual pride. I'll come on to that later. With regards to asexuality in the travel community, there are no awards for best asexual travel blog. There is, as far as I can tell, no one writing about safely travelling as an asexual. Or best places to be asexual. It's almost as if asexuality doesn't exist as a separate entity. Almost as if asexuals themselves don't matter. It took me about two seconds to realise why. See, gay travel is blindingly obvious when it happens. Whilst even friends are more than likely to hold hands in the street, when you're on a free walking tour and see two people give each other a quick peck on the cheek, it's a bit of a giveaway. Then of course there's the whole issue of two people sharing a room. Two people, that's the point. I travel solo. No one knows I'm asexual just by looking at me. I can't be discriminated against by the way I look, dress, behave as I don't appear any different to any other normal, to coin a phrase, traveller. I can't be discriminated against for my beliefs, since in a sense there's nothing to discriminate against. You don't, by definition, get asexual wedding cakes. You don't get asexuals appearing to flaunt their sexuality openly in the street. Well, you do, but no one notices because there's nothing to notice. As a solo traveller too, I'm practising my asexuality just by being there, but no one sees the difference, if indeed there is a difference for most people. This means that travelling as an asexual becomes quite easy. There are no issues with safety whilst travelling, since, as far as I'm aware, being asexual doesn't break laws in any country. You can't legislate against practising asexuality, since, well, what does that mean exactly, anyway? How do you actively be asexual? You can't logically ban not doing something, and how would you prove it, anyway? Oh, you didn't sleep with anyone last night. That's a fine of £200 and 14 nights in jail. Oh, wait, that's what you want, isn't it? To not sleep with someone. Damn. It also means that a travel blog that concentrated on asexuality would be quite dull. Going to any city as an asexual to do asexual things doesn't feel any different from going to a city as a standard tourist and doing standard touristy things. There's nothing I can do as an asexual that would be different. There are no asexual friendly or unfriendly hotels. There are no asexual bars where asexuals can go to not hook up. There's no specifically asexual entertainment. It's just entertainment. They're just bars. They're just hotels. I'm not saying asexuals don't go out and meet people. We do it in the same way everybody else does, except as intimated earlier. We don't do it with subtext. I stay in backpack hostels and talk to other travellers. I go on walking tours with other tourists. Asexual doesn't mean isolationist any more than solo traveller means isolationist. And despite their common theme, there's no connection between the two. As an asexual, I've no objection to travelling with someone, regardless of sexuality, gender, personal identity, etc., to travel somewhere with. As a solo traveller, I'd rather be on my own, but if necessary, I'll tag along with another traveller if it makes it easier. It's very hard to prove that something doesn't exist. In philosophical terms, it's a case of evidence of absence. I can't prove I'm asexual any more than I can prove I'm an only child. Oh look, let me introduce you to my non-existent sister. I look like a solo male traveller. I act like a solo male traveller. To all intents and purposes, I presume everybody assumes I'm straight since I'm not obviously anything else. Apart from my friend Amy, as stated earlier. I don't know, do I come across as gay? The canteen staff in the office building I used to work in said my mannerisms were, in their words, a little camp and that I reminded them of 1970s, 80s comedian Kenny Everett. There's also the small matter of my toenail varnish, which more traditional elements of society may find effeminate and therefore give a certain impression of me, but my friend V suggests that's only a minor aspect. Certainly on the road, I'm much more mainstream and conventional than, say, a 1970s glam rock or 1980s New Romantic fan at their peak. In general, I've found that asexuality is also something that's hard to be proud about. I guess this is partly because some asexuals are, like me, indifferent to it in the sense that it's not actually that important. It doesn't affect my everyday life, so it's not something I think about that often. So possibly much of the time I come across people who are asexual, but not openly so. The only hassle I have is the semi-regular, ah, you just haven't found the right person yet, when I point out that I'm not interested in having a committed relationship. And then there's the related... When are you going to settle down? Often, due to my travel fetish in conjunction with Are you just getting it out of your system? Yes, mother, I'm looking at you. I don't find it offensive, merely mildly amusing. Especially when it comes from my mother. But I guess others would. It's similar in a way to tales I hear of female solo travellers in places like North Africa and India who are constantly asked about a husband. And to be honest, when I was in Central Asia, I had similar questions. Are you married? Is your wife not with you? It's never malicious, but it certainly sounds weird in a culture where anything other than heterosexuality and proven heterosexuality at a younger age than me is the norm. As an aside, the other problem with asexual pride is, and this is just my opinion, you understand, but... uh, See, the gay pride flag is fabulous. The archetypal rainbow, it's distinctive, it's colourful, it's full of life. Just looking at it fills you with a sense of joy, of excitement, of having an emblem you can really get behind. There is an asexual pride flag. I have sewn one onto my backpack. But it's not exactly a flag you could stand up and be proud that it represents you. It's a flag with four horizontal bands. And what colours are these bands? Is one an exciting yellow representing the sunshine and happiness of living your own life? Is one an earthy green, representing that we're grounded in reality and open to the world as it is, without any subtext, or maybe a nice sky blue, showing that we're not bounded by other people's limits, but instead free to soar in the skies as we wish? No. From the top, it's bands of black, grey, white, and purple. It's arguably the least exciting pride-related flag of them all. It's awful. It's ugly. It's like we turned up late to the colour distribution event and this is all we were left. It resembles the display from a badly tuned low colour monitor from the 70s. Or what would happen if someone put a rainbow in Lightroom and reduced reduced saturation to minus 70%. It is the exact opposite of the LGBT pride flag. It is singularly devoid of any happiness or joy. It may even perpetuate a stereotype of asexuals as grumpy bastards. Sad, dour individuals who have had all of their happiness sucked out and severely lacking imagination. It's bollocks, I know, but in a way it seems apt. I'd like to think that we asexuals are too busy in life having fun to worry about things like designing flags, and thus the impression that this flag gives is of one being designed by people with a deadline, and this was what they came up with five minutes before they had to give their presentation. Almost a, "eh, yeah, that'll do, we're asexuals, we don't care, we don't need a flag anyway, sort of situation leading to a flag that isn't really attractive, but I doubt anyone really cares, because we wouldn't be flag bearers anyway. Apparently it was decided by an internet poll on an asexual website. Coming from a country that once voted to name an ocean-going vessel Boaty Boatface," I have to say this doesn't surprise me, though I really worry about what the alternative flag options were. The city of Magnitogorsk in Siberia has a town emblem of a black triangle on a grey background. It's an industrial city that only really exists because of iron mining and steel working, so its emblem kind of represents that. I think I know how they must feel stuck with a symbol that has quite an indifferent feel to it. With regards to the asexual flag, I'd have hate to have seen the rejected options. They probably involved brown, the only colour that would have made the flag worse. Apparently, the black stripe represents pure asexuality, and I feel this promotes the stereotype a little, a dark, loveless, hidden, cold soul. The white stripe, those asexuals who still feel some sexual attraction. And the grey stripe, the grey area transition between them. Whilst this sounds weird at first, it provides a representation for those people who can experience sexual attraction, but only with a strong emotional bond, demisexuals. As well as those people whose sexual feelings do appear, but only on very rare occasions. The purple stripe is supposed to represent the asexual community as a whole. No, no idea either, but purple is a cool colour. Since even most asexuals probably wouldn't recognise the flag, and may not acknowledge it even if they did, it's probably not going to be a danger for me to travel to more socially restrictive countries with it on display, since no one's going to really know what it is. I could even probably pretend it's the flag of some small obscure ex-communist European republic. Basically, I'm not scared to have it on display, and indeed the I'd rather eat cake sweatshirt mentioned earlier has a small symbol of a slice of cake layered out in the flag colours. Whereas I may well be more so were I to be gay and travelling with a gay pride flag. But asexual pride? Yeah, maybe that doesn't sit quite as well with me. But there's a certain amount of privilege here, of course. I'm fully aware of that. As a non-displaying, outwardly heterosexual-looking man, I can get away with being much more complacent than many others and why I, of all the people in that acronym, have the best of both worlds. I want now to introduce a few of my Twitter buddies to identify elsewhere on the acronym so you can see how differences their experiences are. First up is Shauna from Shauna's World, who, while she also identifies as asexual, she has a very different leaning and experiences to me.
2: So I travel a fair amount, and when I was invited to share my thoughts on travel and sexuality, I admit it was something I'd never really thought of as being an issue. Well, not now that I'm comfortable in my sexuality, but I guess I had many years of confusion around that identity, and that sometimes got me in some awkward situations. But thinking a bit more deeply about some of the challenges I've had on my travels, I realise sexuality is very much a part of that. I mostly travel solo or sometimes with friends, so maybe lots of other people in my position would be exploring sexuality as they travel, meeting beautiful hippies along the way to get jiggy with. Not me, though. I'm asexual and have no interest whatsoever in canoodling with the lovely people I meet along the way. The trouble was, I didn't know what asexuality was until I was 27. I'm 31 now and I first went travelling when I was 18. I had no idea that not having sex was an option. I thought it was just one of the horrible facts of life. I remember when I was 19 I was in a nightclub, I think it was in Arequipa in Peru, and I got chatting to a guy and we got on so well. He was a local, he was telling me about his city and how he loved showing tourists around and sharing his culture and learning about theirs. Standard travel chat, right? And I thought really highly of him, but I had no idea that all the while he was flirting And as I tend to mirror people, and I'm quite enthusiastic, I was probably perceived as flirting back. In my mind, it was totally innocent. It never crossed my mind he wanted anything more. Then he put his hands down my trousers and I freaked out and cried and ran through the town back to my hostel. I was baffled by him, but also baffled by my reaction. I saw all my friends going off travelling and having holiday romances and I couldn't fathom why I found sex so repulsive. It didn't always get easier after I realised I was asexual. I was in Belize in 2014, and I think it was quite soon after I'd realised I was ace, but I knew also that I was homo romantic, which means although I feel no sexual attraction to anyone, I can have romantic connections with other women, not men though. So I was on this solo trip and I noticed that a lot of the men were very tactile, like one guy hugging me and not letting me go after I bought a coconut from him and as I tried to get away he got quite aggressive and I stayed in my hostel for a whole day after that and I felt so uncomfortable. I also found the first question everyone asked was, do you have a boyfriend? When I said no, they would ask, why not? And when I said I didn't want one, sometimes they would try to kiss me. On one occasion, I tried to explain asexuality, but he didn't get it. It just wasn't something he could comprehend. I never said that it was women I liked, because I was worried about stigma, and I didn't know what attitudes to same-sex relationships were like. However... One of the privileges I've had in travelling solo is that while I like women, I've always been single. That means that my queerness isn't visible, so I've never had any issues with homophobia. I have no shame about liking women, but I do have nerves around different cultural attitudes and how I might be treated. You know, I hadn't really thought about how my sexuality impacts travel, but it's a bit of a minefield. Why should I ever have to feel uncomfortable or worry about judgement or feel I have to hide part of who I am because of my identity? The things that matter about me when I travel are my curiosity, my openness, my sensitivity, my willingness to learn, not who I do or don't choose to have sex with or hold hands with.
1: Here's Wilfred, a trans traveller from the UK, And they tell of their experiences of going through airports and the things they have to be wary of and prepared for when going through airport security in particular.
4: Travelling while transgender is just an added layer of complication and consideration when making your plans. The first question you have to ask yourself is always, am I going to be safe? So my partner, who grew up in parts of Africa, wants to go back to to Nairobi, to Addis Ababa, and I have to think, am I going to be safe there as a person? This is complicated by the fact that we both obviously present as male and uh, homophobic attitudes will also play into our safety and security in in various countries. Um, Airport travel is another major issue. Um, Airport security will flag a body type and so if your body is not obvious as one of those types then you're much more likely to get searched and for a transgender person that can be increasingly humiliating if uh, the Uh, Security agents don't have sufficient education on those issues. Um, So there's that constant worry that you're going to be humiliated, that your rights are going to be affected, that you're going to face mockery, uh, verbal assault or or even physical assault, um, that the police might not be understanding in, in those cases. It's just that added layer that makes you less willing to go to certain places, to take certain risks and to have certain experiences. And that's been very hard. Questions of practicality also arise. Um, As a transmasculine person, I tend to wear a chest blinder all the time. And it means I can't carry heavy bags for prolonged periods or um, engage in intense physical exercise. So I either have the choice of essentially having visible breasts or not hiking, not climbing not undertaking some of the more kind of enjoyable physical activities, which puts a bit of a damper on some domestic holidays as well as um, activities I might like to take part in abroad. It also is not recommended for trans men to bind while going through airport security. Again, that comes up because that compressed area can show up on scans and lead to more probability of being searched, as can having a passport that bears a different gender marker to how you are read. Obviously, not everyone is passing as the gender they wish to be seen as, all the time. So again, just more complication, more worry and and a more limited experience of travelling.
1: And finally, Hannah from Hannah B Blocks, who talks about travelling as bisexual and has very different feelings on displaying relevant symbols of sexuality. Again, highlighting just how much privilege I have even in this community.
0: So when I was at school, I realised I was bisexual. So I've never travelled without knowing that I first went backpacking at 18. My sexuality does affect the way that I travel in that I make sure I don't have any badges, rainbow stickers or, um, I don't know, words written in notebooks that would identify my sexuality. It just doesn't feel safe. All it would take is one person to start verbally harassing me or getting violent. Um, I can only afford to sleep in youth hostels when I travel. And in a dorm setting, it just feels like if there was any problems, it could escalate really quickly and you'd be trapped in that kind of space with lots of other people who may or may not be on your side, really. Um, However, if I get chatting to people and they seem safe, then sure, I might come out to them and talk about my sexuality, swap numbers, that kind of thing. If I'm going to a country where homosexuality is illegal, uh, for example Sri Lanka, then I might take um, a spare phone with me that doesn't have anything on it, such as photos of me and a girlfriend, so that if I were to get stopped um, at an airpoint or a checkpoint for any reason, there's just nothing that anyone could hold me for. Um, again, even though it's it's quite unlikely, I know that um, whilst it's legal in countries like Sri Lanka, it's not actively enforced. I just want to feel as safe as I can. I would never travel to some parts of the world like Russia, Morocco, Egypt or parts of the Middle East where LGBT people are being actively imprisoned, tortured, rounded up, killed. For safety for myself and also out of protest, I just can't ever have any of my tourism benefiting the systems of power that are doing that to people. In the past, I've had a French partner. I would sometimes go over to France and visit her. She was perfectly happy to be affectionate in the street, holding hands or a brief kiss on the cheek or the lips like any couple would do. But I I think because I didn't know France as well as my own country, I couldn't help but stop her I just felt too afraid that anything might happen. I wish it didn't have to be like that. Again, I know it's probably fine, but it only takes one person one time and then it's too late, something's happened. You don't always know how safe you're going to be in any situation. So I can't help but travel in fear, really. But I try not to let it stop me and I just try to go away and enjoy my trips anyway. Um, One exception to that might be if I'm travelling to another European country where the stakes are low. Sometimes I might allow a bi-flag sticker or a badge on my bag or something, just because so few people know what it is, but it might help identify me to someone else with that sexuality. Um, it's not happened yet, but maybe one day.
1: I'll end with another few words from my friend, Yaya.
3: I think what might be important is if the mentality of people changes, and that is difficult because most of the world, sadly and still, is quite conservative and traditional. And even in the countries that are more open to different kinds of sexuality, there are still people who are looking down on it. So I think it's a a deeper problem and more tied to entire society than on the individual.
1: Well, that's just about it for this week. Next time I'll be doing another destination-specific episode. Find out next week which exciting city or country I'll be talking about off the beaten track. Until then, have a good Christmas and New Year, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Nashville studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at RTW Barefoot or email me at info of barefoot-backpacker.com Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.